0: to The Retail Razor Show, where your expert hosts and their guests cut through the clutter in retail and retail tech to shape the future of retail.
1: Hello, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Whatever time of day you're listening, welcome to The Retail Razor Show. I'm your host, Ricardo Belmar, a Rethink Retail, top retail influencer, and lead partner marketing advisor for retail and consumer goods at Microsoft.
2: I'm your co-host, Casey Golden, CEO of LuxLock. Obsessed with the relationship between a brand and consumer, the experience is everything. I've spent my career on the fashion and supply chain technology side of the business. Now I'm slaying Frankenstacks to power the future of commerce.
1: So Casey, this episode is a real treat for listeners, keeping with our recent themes on innovation and leadership. Our Retail Avengers crew on Clubhouse brought in none other than Andy Lodato, currently the Chief Operating Officer at The Vitamin Shop a CNBC technology executive council member, a fellow advisory council member at George Mason University's Center for Retail Transformation, also a fellow Rethink Retail top retail influencer, and most recently, author of the book, Fostering Innovation, How to Build an Amazing IT Team. Andy joined us for a deep dive on building the right environment for innovation.
2: It's a great Clubhouse discussion. Andy brings a fresh perspective and has valuable experiences to share about creating that ideal environment to foster innovation. After our two part series on digital transformation and innovation, this one really dials it up with best practices from a real world retail expert
1: making changes. Yeah, Andy has lived through a lot when it comes to innovation. He's got so many examples he's he's worked hard to figure out what the right way is to create that ideal environment for innovation. Andy really shares with us what worked and, and what didn't throughout the discussion.
2: Spoiler alert, you'd be surprised how concrete is a retail requirement. Stick around <laughs> for his stories.
1: It's definitely one of Andy's best stories that he shares in this session. But let's not give away all the best parts, Casey.
2: All right, all right. I'll let the dialogue unfold.
1: Yes, quite clever. Nice and smoothly done. I, I bet you've been waiting to say that, haven't you?
2: <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that totally never got to use that phrase before (laughs) (laughs) i'm digging these one-liners
1: i'm getting a lot of those in
2: (laughs) so let's cut through the clutter and get to the clubhouse session the retail avengers build a culture of innovation with special guest andy lodato he'll be with us when we come back to ask him even more questions so stick around
1: (laughs) Welcome everybody to the Retail Razor Room. We've got a special treat this week. We're going to be talking about building a culture of innovation. We have a special guest that we'll introduce in just a moment, but in case anybody in our audience here is not one of our regular visitors, we'll do some quick introductions of the Retail Avengers team that's always here in the room. Casey, why don't you kick us off?
2: Hi, I'm Casey Golden. I'm the founder of LuxLock, retail tech platform focusing on customer experience. Been on the industry side of the fashion and enterprise tech, so kind of moved myself into the convergence of both. All
1: right, great. And Trevor?
3: My name is Trevor Sumner. I'm the CEO at Perch. We do interactive retail displays that use computer vision to detect which products people touch. So they wake up and immediately tell you about the right product at the right time. And so uh, an exciting frontier of Computer Vision, IoT, and Interactive Retail Display. Thanks, Trevor. And Jeff? Hi, Jeff Roster, a former Gartner and IHL Retail Sector Analyst, now a co-host of This
0: Week in Innovation and on a couple of advisory boards. Great. Thank you. And Shish? Good afternoon. I'm Shish. I'm the Global Lead for Retail at Microsoft. I've been uh, in retail for about 20 years, focused on AI, and currently, from an innovation perspective, driving co-innovation with startups for retailers. Looking forward to the conversation with Andy today. Thanks, Trish. And I'm Ricardo Belmore. For those that don't know me, I'm the
1: lead partner marketing advisor at Microsoft. I've also been in the, the retail tech side of the industry for the last two decades, trying to help retailers really get the best value from technology investments. And super excited to have with us our special guest today, Andy Lodato, COO at the Vitamin Shop. And Andy, I'm going to let you kick off about yourself and how you got to where you are today and what led you to write your Book that was just published, Fostering Innovation, which is the topic of our room today.
4: Great. Well, thank you, Ricardo. And hello, everybody. Great to be here. I'm a longtime listener and uh, contributor to the retail vendors. I am the chief operating officer at the Vitamin Shop. The Vitamin Shop is a just over a billion dollar health and wellness retailer. We're mostly in the US. We have over 700 stores in the US. And then, of course, we sell on vitaminshop.com. So, in my role as COO, I oversee the PL for our e commerce. I run the supply chain, technology, what we call enterprise portfolio management, which is something I think we'll hopefully talk more about today, as well as the quality and commercialization of our private brands. Or another way to describe it is I do everything at the vitamin shop that the CEO does not want to do.
1: I love that description.
4: <laughs> I'm assuming people are laughing at my jokes, but, I, you know, I can't hear them, but I'll just assume. Yeah, you got it. And you're yeah. all laughing. Okay, perfect.
1: Yeah, we are. We are. Oh, we are. Oh, we just, <laughs>
4: <laughs> so, um. I started my career way back um, in 1990 as a computer program at The Limited, Fashion Apparel. I was uh, the first ever IT guy at a little startup called Bath & Body Works. And I really just fell in love with the business side. I consider myself a business person who happens to love technology, not a technologist that works in business. And um, 20 years as a CIO, and during that experience I made a lot of mistakes, um, especially early on, and some of them costly. And it really inspired me to write a book about some of the mistakes I made, what lessons I learned, and the, the goal is to help a young people, our people in their, early in their careers, learn the easy way, right? Buy a book, read about it, and uh, do things better. I believe a rising tide raises all ships, and especially in
1: retail, we need to help each other out, so I'm hoping that this book will inspire and help everybody that reads it. Thank you, Andy. I'm sure uh, everyone who does read your book in retail is going to greatly appreciate all the wonderful insights and uh, stories that you told in there, as well as all the great tips. Uh, I know I certainly came away from reading the book with uh, a number of them uh, as well, and and I'm not even a CIO, so I think everybody's going to have something to to learn from that. My book's for every man, woman, and child in the United States. There you go. There you go. That's the right way to right way to look at it. No, not, not to mention the fact I think we all agree that there's a good need for lots and lots of collaboration in the retail industry given all of the current day and future challenges facing industry. So let's start in one particular area, Andy, that you dive into right up front in the book. And that's what you call Lodato's hierarchy of IT needs, which as you might guess is based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And well, Maslow postulated, of course, that in order to achieve things like love, belonging, esteem and self-actualization, you've got to first satisfy a lot of physiological needs, things like, I don't know, little things like eating, drinking, sleeping, uh, and then safety needs. So I think you drew a really great analogy to that, to put together your hierarchy of IT needs and not to steal uh, away too much thunder from that. Why don't you walk us through your version of the pyramid and how that relates to running an IT shop?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think of Maslow is saying if you're being chased by a bear, you can't fall in love, right? You got priorities. And so making sure you have air and food and water and then you're safe, all these things have to happen. And we all want to innovate. We all talk about innovation and innovation is very important. But if the basic IT needs are not met, it's just not going to happen. So at the very bottom of the Lodato hierarchy for IT is just KTLO, keep the lights on. And the emails have to email and the paychecks have to print and the registers have to ring and the website has to perform. And like it or not, if you're in IT leadership, this is your most important job. IT can do a lot more harm than good. An amazing IT department's not going to make a company successful, but a failed IT department will, I don't care how nice your product is, if you can't sell it, can't ship it, if you can't return it, then you're going to fail. So this is the main job is keeping the lights on. It's not. The exciting job, right? It's not the fun, sexy stuff we get to do like digital signs and things like that that Trevor does, but it's at the foundation. So that's what you start with and you got to figure it out and you have to have a well-oiled machine or nothing else matters. Every single uh, CIO always talks about, they want a seat at the table. And a lot of times they'll tell you to demand a seat at the table, but it doesn't work, you have to earn your seat at the table. And I'm talking about the exec table, the boardroom. And the reason you have to earn it is because in every company I've ever worked in, the true org chart is the informal, not the formal. So let's assume that we get this figured out and you have the things running smoothly. The next level up then is what I call lean and efficient IT. So this is about first you get it right and then you get it cheap. And lean and efficient IT means it's affordable, it's functioning well, because if you're a CIO and you start to go talk to other departments about programs and projects and systems and your budgets are out of control you just have no credibility um now look if you can't keep the lights on you know say you have a big problem you're going to pay any amount of money possible so you got to get it right then you work on optimizing costs and every dollar that you can save or avoid spending is a dollar that could be added to innovation so if you really want to innovate it's possible to sell fun by finding other things to make efficient
1: i want to turn to the the Avengers panel members here and see what everybody thinks about those first two layers, keeping the lights on and creating that leading, efficient IT. Gosh. Well, the first question I want
3: to ask is what's your, what's your overall IT spend, Andy, <laughs> but i no not, so keeping the lights on, it used to be almost 60 to 70% of, our, of an IT budget was, was basically depending on how you define that, that case, I'm assuming everyone's trying to drive that down. Is that part of the, the process that you're, you're going after?
4: Yeah. So the first. The bottom of my pyramid is just keeping lights on any way you can. And then the lean and efficient IT is about just that. It's about optimizing your costs so that you can have a higher percentage that's going towards creating value and uh, innovating.
2: Where do you think that we are right now in general for, let's just say, the predominant of retail? Do we feel like everybody has a core efficient We're beyond keeping the lights on and everybody's made those investments? Would you say it's like 60%, 80%, how close are we at like the core base?
4: You know, it's astonishing to me that it's 2022. And in order to build a retail stack for Omnichannel, you probably need to include at least 20 to 30 different companies. I mean. Everyone's got a different, and I know that uh, Microsoft's on their path to be able to provide these as are others trying, but the leading e-commerce platforms are not the leading OMS platforms. I mean, I ask about subscriptions and then everyone tells you to use another platform. And then if, you know, you look at the stack people have on their websites, it's just layer after layer of these really niche functions and features. And so when you think about it. When I, I had a little short stint in healthcare and there were big enterprise tools that kind of ran the whole company. So I think we are there, Casey. I think that most retailers have built these things, but it takes an awful lot of work, effort, and coordination to keep them all working together. I mean, imagine if you wanted a new car and you had to buy your chassis from Ford and your steering wheel from Chevy and your engine from Honda. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. And this is how exactly we the right analogy. And some of the parts don't exist. you got to build those custom, right? And so this is what we're doing in retail. So where are we? We've come a long way, but it's still a giant mess. I love that
2: analogy. I want to see a diagram.
1: <laughs>
2: this one <laughs> doesn't go
4: very fast. <laughs> it's,
3: I mean, that certainly dovetails into my question, which is, you know, certainly the, the markets, the retail is changing faster than it ever has. And... I think of IT almost like electricity, right? You don't think about electricity in your offices or in what you do on a day-to-day basis, but it powers everything that you do. Similarly, IT powers everything that you do. How do you think through like the different departments, whether it's marketing, sales, supply chain, and IT, and how to think through budgets, innovation, and, and managing that? Is it all... Is all IT in the IT budget or like, where is the line where it flirts into a department, even though it's powered by technology? Cause these days technology is like electricity.
4: Yeah. So I do agree, right? You walk in a room and flip the switch. You want, you expect the light to come on and a lot has to happen. There has to be a power plan and distribution and a lot had to happen, but it's there and it's figured out generally for in Texas, that stuff works. And so. You pick up a telephone, at least an old-fashioned telephone, and you expect a dial tone. And it's the same thing with the internet, right? It's a commodities and even past the internet, it's about the cloud having, you know, CPU, so processing and, and storage. So- I absolutely do agree that it is uh, necessary. I mean, I was looking for a new place to live, and I checked on what kind of internet is available. And uh, we all remember you just have to research before you went to a hotel and how much was it going to charge. So I I definitely agree with that. As far as where the budget should go, and I actually talk about this in the book, I'm a big fan of showback, not chargeback. So I do believe that the cost of technology should be in an IT budget, because if not, how can those costs be managed and how can you get to lean and efficient, which is the second step. Now, showback is about actually letting everyone know how much of IT costs are being attributed to each of the different departments. But if you let the departments of a company pay for IT, then they're going to have a bigger say. So the head of marketing might be all in on the Amazon cloud and the head of sales is all in on the Azure cloud and someone else wants to have their own computer. So, you know, the people writing the checks have a lot of power, so I'm not a proponent of individual departments paying for IT. I
3: I guess part of my question is, there's certainly, like you said, laptops, internet connectivity, but from a data perspective, let's say you have a customer data platform. Is that marketing budget? Is that IT budget? Is that being integrated into other systems for e-commerce or even supply chains? So then marketing heads into operations and everything needs to be talking to each other. And then there might be integration. Is it when you cross departments that it becomes IT? What is IT versus a departmental technology spend in, in your world?
4: Yeah, there just aren't that many siloed solutions. I mean, a customer data platform has a role in stores, it has a role in the website, it has a role in outbound marketing, it has a role in customer care. And so to have that and be in a single budget, to me, IT is the kind of the neutral party for that. So yeah, I guess I'll repeat myself, but I'm a big proponent of anything that's technology should be in an IT budget because it's the glue that holds it together. I mean, there's a um, really good book called uh, Corporate Underpants by Tamara Adler, I think her name is. And it talks about how you could look at a company's website and kind of see the different departments. And I think if you start to silo your tech, then you're going to, it's going to show up to the customer. You're not going to be seamless to the customer if you're not seamless on the back end.
1: So Andy, one thing that I'm going to ask you about there on, on that specific point where I just mentioned how That has an impact in giving the appearance and perception to the customer that it's all seamless. You make a point in the book about complacency and how that's the number one enemy of reliability. And when I saw that, that reminds me of a lot of conversations I've had with retailers in the past about consistency and execution at the store level from store to store and how that also impacts that consumer perception of the whole retail brand. So when you mention it in the context of keeping the lights on, it's never really a solved thing, right? You don't stop keeping the lights on ever, right? It's always an ongoing thing. And that's why it's the foundation in your pyramid. Is that the right way to look at it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Ricardo, we operate in a dynamic world. So whether it's bandwidth, you need more and more bandwidth, processing power, security measures. There's always new tools being added to the stack or existing tools being used differently. The bad guys are out there. They're, you know, they're continually coming up with new attack vectors. Like we're not having enough trouble. We're getting attacked by uh, bad actors. And so if you build it and it's great and you don't nurture it, it's going to fall apart. That's why it's a full-time job. You know, you always have to just stay on top of KTLO. And uh, the more you do and the more routine and the more process that you can put in place and now even automation and AI, then the smoother it's going to go.
1: And, and if you're Doing that well, that should lead to the lean and efficient IT part of of the pyramid and make that easier, right? If you have that consistency and reliability. Right. I like to use the word institutionalize.
4: If you can institutionalize a process, then it's bigger than just one person. It's repeatable. I always start my day with a stand-up. We actually do a hundred person stand-up every day at the vitamin shop with operations, our CEOs on there. And we just talk about what new systems are, any changes, any problems. And so that becomes institutionalized that we're all talking about it and it just gets really smooth. And as it gets smooth and automated and consistent, then it becomes cheaper, more affordable. No, yeah,
1: well, that makes complete sense. Why don't you take us to the the next layer of the pyramid?
4: Yeah. So the next one is called creating value. And in a lot of cases, creating value is what many people think all that IT does, which is projects. So this is putting in maybe an accounting system or a new order management or all the different tools we talked about from a CDP. So you do a ROI and go to your FDNA group and you bicker over the benefits, you get signed off, you hire an integrator and implement technology. And this is really important, but it's just not all IT does, right? You only want to create value After you've got a nice firm foundation, you don't want to throw more tools or more software on a wobbly foundation. So probably the most common activity that Apps Group does, and I think the most important thing is to work on the right things. And this is why portfolio management is so important. So I do think that good project management practices do exist. And Agile has really brought a lot, especially on the software side. I actually created a class on project management on Udemy because I have kind of a passion for that. But portfolio management is important because even if you have a very well run project, but you're not working on the right things, then you're wasting your company's money or just not optimizing the spend. So a couple of principles I'd like to share. The first one is stop starting and start finishing. People love to kick off projects because it feels like they're getting something done. Like, oh, when are we gonna get our new order management tool? Oh yeah, we had a meeting, we got some demos, right? So starting a project doesn't deliver value. Working on a project does nothing but spend money. It's only when you deliver the features that you actually add value to your company. Another thing is uh, agile concept is called a whip limit or work in process limit. And I contend, I make the argument that everybody has too many concurrent projects going on. So my advice is to stop starting new things until you finish at least 10 or 15% of what's in life. If you have 20 projects in your company and you rank them one through 20 and you finish number one, Now you have 19 projects. What the company will typically do is they'll start a new project, right? Which will be your new number 20. Then you put people on it. What you're actually doing is you're putting people on what you defined as the least important project in your whole company. So instead, what I recommend is that you take people that free up and then you add them to project the new number one. And this is an agile called swarming. Take your people and just continue to push really hard to complete the most important project that has been decided by your executive team and get it done and just focus on completion. And then that's creating value. And then finally, we get to the top. It seems like a journey and it is. And that's when you get to innovate. So you've got a really well-oiled machine every day, just like Trevor said, it's like electricity. It just works and all your systems are smooth and they work. And then it doesn't cost you a lot of money. And honestly, when it's affordable, it doesn't even matter what budget it's in because if say one and a half or 2% of the companies spend, and now you've got projects going on and everyone knows what number one is and it's getting done. I mean, if you just do all those three things, you're going to be a star, right? But now if you get, there now you can start to focus attention on innovation because innovation is spending time and talent and treasure on things that probably won't work so you're literally telling your company we're going to spend money we're going to take hopefully our very best people and we're going to have them do something that probably won't work how do you do that if the first three aren't met so in my mind you get all three working and then boom now you've earned the right to innovate.
2: It's a great point. How do you pick the next innovation or project to bring in when you have 19 other projects that haven't completed yet and started impacting the business? Because ideally, you'd want to layer the next projects on top of the the ones that have completed, you know, and that are starting to work
4: in, and be rolled out through the organization. Exactly. And when people have already done the work to say that those projects will succeed and they have an ROI that people believe in. Now you're trying to do something innovative that doesn't have that. So, you know, what I like to do is is box some kind of funds and say, this is our R&D funds and our R&D people. But yeah, exactly what you said, Casey. And so now if your projects aren't completing on time and they're going over budget, then it becomes next to impossible to ask for funds to try something innovative.
3: How do you think through, you know, at at Perch, we do the majority of our deals directly with brands who are spending their trade dollars towards innovation. And often it's being presented as category captaincy to almost look at an innovation project for the retailers. How do you think through brands bringing new innovations as part of that kind of budget? Because it's still your resource. It's still your treasure and talent, right? just in, in terms of time, and how do you balance what brands are trying to accomplish with what you're trying to accomplish as a retailer, you know, if the spend is coming from them?
4: Yeah, I mean, it helps, right, if someone else is funding it. And so now all of a sudden it has the much lower burden to get approved. So I think that it still has to fit into the priority or it has to be somebody has to sponsor it as an innovation. But absolutely, of course, if someone else is uh, coming forward with, with funding, it's an easier burden of the risk.
2: Andy, when you're thinking about moving those budgets out of departments and into IT, I don't know, if you're, if you're selling into a department, IT might be the last conversation that you have before a contract signed. How do you see that having those business owners working with IT? I know a lot of times they're not in necessarily even in the same buildings. So being able to just even foster that type of a culture where you you create that culture of being able to cross collaborate so that the business pain and the problems that a department's having is is actually being presented and heard by IT.
4: Right. Imagine a place where the CIO and the, the directors and managers and VPs in IT understand the business and they understand the business goals and they're there to help something get done, right? And they can become champions because almost all tools have to be integrated. They have to be the security. I mean, how many companies um, do you have a different user ID and password in your own company for every different system, right? That's that's ridiculous, but that's <laughs> normal. So if IT is a partner, they build a single sign-on tool or implement a single sign-on tool that works across every, every single app. So a store person logs on once and gets to all their different tools. And even though it's different tools, at least it feels more seamless if it's on a single pane of glass with a single password. So, I mean, it just starts with embracing IT, but I say all the time that IT has to meet the business at 95% where they are. It's not about IT. It's about whatever the business is, right? Whatever we're selling and whoever our customers are. But yeah, IT in a different building is a nightmare. IT in a different floor with a different culture and different working conditions and different hours and just not part of the company culture. And they have their own culture. Then they're just a roadblock instead of a partner. So it's all got to be fixed, but it, it starts with leadership.
2: If you could give one piece of advice to the companies that are looking to implement software this year that do have department budgets or manage it at the IT level, if you could give one piece of feedback on how to pull everyone together to make those decisions together, what do you think this the first is, step this is? is? not a direct answer,
4: but I think the most important thing is to get those IT people working in the store, shopping on the website, really living the, take a call from the customer care, right? I mean, if you're a database analyst and It takes two minutes for the register to run. That's like an interesting problem that you might ponder. If you're a store associate standing in a store and the line starts to form because the register's not performing, that two minutes is like an eternity. I mean, I've been there, you know, sweat comes dripping off. And so getting that empathy by actually getting the people out of their whatever they're working now remote, you know, their home basements into stores is the most important thing, I think, to start with. That's great.
0: Andy, curious about your opinion about where innovation should sit in a company. I know a couple of years ago, there was this big wave of innovation labs happening in retail, and many of them didn't quite survive very long. And there was various reasons quoted for failure, including that they were created for the wrong reasons. They were innovation theater, and they were disconnected from the business, all of those things. I was kind of curious about What are your thoughts are on innovation labs and separate innovation teams within an organization versus integrated? That's a great question, Sish. It's kind of like when e-com started happening in the
4: 1999s, then everybody Mm -hmm. said, oh, we got to be in California. So they all built separate organizations. And look, we spent 10 years using the word digital, and now we're using the word innovation. I put up my book. We got to define what we mean by innovation. And so for me, it's coming up with solving an unmet need for a customer, right? I think about Uber, having taxis and the idea of paying someone to drive you somewhere is probably as old as cars, you know, probably over 100 years old. But Uber came up with a new way to deliver that. So that's innovation, even though it's just you're getting in someone's car and getting a ride and paying them for it. I think defining innovation is important. And for me, then, it's got to be your best and brightest. And boy, that's an easy thing to say, a hard thing to do, because, you know, Casey alluded to it with projects, right? You're going to take your best developers or project managers or business analysts List or product owners, Scrum masters off number one project and stick them on innovation. But yeah, I'm not a fan of separating people now. Look, we're all remote and I think we're all going to be remote. So that whole proximity thing is almost like a moot point in a sense. But yeah, I think it's gotta be part of it. I think an innovation project should be in the same list as everything else. I'm a huge fan of, and I call it a one list of having a single list, force ranked one through X and not having a separate here's my departments projects or my department's money because you're just creating conflict internally. Now look I've mostly worked the biggest company I worked at you know I worked at a four billion dollar company so if you're really really big company probably different but to me one list of projects one team one partnership all focused around the three or four business objectives is how the most gets done and how everyone can come together.
0: And and you kind of mentioned something interesting which is the unmet customer need and keeping focus on the customer. One of those aspects that was interesting for me was JCPenney's attempt at innovation and also maybe Virgin America's attempt at innovation where the customer needs were not quite in focus, but they did that. So that's interesting, too.
4: The thing I think is crazy about JC, like in retail, when we, when we talk about stores, we can try something in one store and then do it in 12 and then do it in 100 and then do it in 1,000, right? And if we're talking about online, we can A-B test. We AB test every feature, so we give it to five percent of the customers. So the fact that pennies actually went to like hundreds of hundreds of stores at the same time—it's astonishing, right? Why? Why'd you? Why would you do that? Make yeah. make sure get it right in one before you do it in, in ten.
2: Yeah, I'm a big advocate for doing those rollouts in your bottom doors. I'm like anything, almost anything will work in a flagship. It, it produces great KPIs, but can you do it at, and afford it on a bottom door?
4: <laughs> yes yeah, great point point. and if you can't that's a great point scale it yeah,
2: yeah scale those up because if it doesn't work at a bottom door then come on we've only got five top doors typically
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's like my favorite thing that i've had to say to a number of retailers over the years is almost every time your proof of concept will work when you do it at your stores that you've tagged as the test stores because they're always ready right they're they mm-hmm. anticipate and they're they're Know what to expect, and they have higher tolerance if something doesn't work out in a proof of concept, then to your point Casey, right, they pick your bottom doors where they they can't tolerate anything not working, and you put something new in there, and if you can make it work, then you've probably figured out how to make it work everywhere else,
2: yeah, exactly. It's easy to scale it up. I've seen a lot of projects be rolled out with large budgets at a top door, and then it's you know one twenty fifth of the budget to do it at a bottom door, and it doesn't work. And it's like, well, it's terrible experience.
3: Yeah, I guess we see that too. I think overall there's this trend to kind of personalize stores by geography, different product selection, different offerings. And I'd love your thoughts on how do you balance the importance of consistency and consistency in measurement, consistency in standard operating procedures, consistency in systems with a desire to both innovate and regionalize and personalize. Yeah, are you asking me, Trevor, or Casey? I'm not asking everybody, but you're the you're the star this week. So, sure,
4: that's a great question. I mean, we uh, just rolled out our first franchise store. So, this is really top of mind for us because, you know, one of the benefits they were looking for from franchisees is their creativity and uh, bringing ideas back. Everyone knows, like, the franchisee came up with the Big Mac and the $5 foot long, you know, and so. But we want to make sure when you walk into the store, the customer shouldn't even know that that vitamin shop is not owned by the corporation. So I think it's all about guardrails and say, here's where you do not have leeway to change on branding, on product, and here's where you do. So I think you've got kind of to loosen the reins on local stores and whether it's assortment or culture or process or, or fixture design, but all within guardrails of, of the brand. That's interesting that you guys opened up your
2: first franchise. How are you dealing with e-commerce and some of the tech stocks
4: with the franchisees we didn't really open up how do you think we sold the store but we sold the territory ah so think of it as a five mile circle and so any e-commerce sale that happens in that circle belongs to that so we share a royalty on e-commerce sales we have a resource royalty if they sell something and i'm getting extra. but every single thing we're doing is being there's a participation from the franchisee so even if there's a subscription they sell and then we fulfill it we're going to give them a, a royalty on that it's it's a really neat model. and We worked through it in detail. We just didn't want to compete against them. And and a lot of people that were franchised in retail before e-commerce, they're kind of struggling now with some of these, these things.
2: Yeah, it's been a definite struggle for a lot of fashion brands, specifically in that franchise model in different countries, because they don't have access to the e-commerce store or a lot of the digital technology on the back end. So interesting.
1: So, Andy, I want to ask you a slightly different point. So in, in all of the areas that you've talked about on, you know, what you've learned are the, the best ways to do this. I'm curious, what kind of resistance have you come across from different organizations when you've tried to follow this approach as you've outlined it in the book as you're creating value and you're doing that to lead to innovation? And for example, you, you referenced concrete a lot in some of your examples. So I'm curious, where does that come from? And is that anything to do with, you know, the kind of challenges and resistance you ran into through different organizations?
4: Yeah. When I worked at uh, Pier 1, we built this new headquarters and we built this parking garage. Everybody was so excited about the parking garage, right? It's you're going to park closer. It was covered. And I was just getting jealous of the parking garage because it was like this solid thing that you could see every day and you could see the progress and you could see the benefit. Like, oh yeah, I get to park my car in the sun and the shade. Meanwhile, I'm working on a million dollar new HR system and no one really can see what they're going to get and why we're doing it. So I just, to me, like I talk about the Parking garage is my project that I, if we can make IT projects as visible as building a garage, I mean, because ultimately it's more important to Pier 1 to have a a new HR system than to have really good parking for the employees. But no one really felt that. (laughs) We know where Pier Pier 1 ended up. And then just in the hierarchy, it's about a firm foundation and and really with two feet. So as you move up the pyramid, you got to have a firm foundation. So, yeah, those are kind of some of the reasons I think about that. Just a little jealousy of uh, that project. Parking garage.
1: I, I bet everyone has their own version of the parking garage story.
4: So much of IT is nebulous and not tangible, right? And so it's, it's our jobs to make it more more tangible.
1: Yeah, I would expect that even in, when you're In the creating value project, how you state the value has to be pretty, pretty important part of the process to to that point, because as you just said, if the overall project is one of these, I'll use the phrase kind of behind the scenes projects where the the outcome of the technology is something that employees are going to take for granted of, okay, it's just working and not think through why it's so critical for the business. How do you sell the value of those kinds of projects? Well, you
4: got to start in the in the beginning, right? And be clear about what you're getting, why you're getting it, why you're doing it. I mean, Shish mentioned AI. AI is really difficult in my mind to prove value because a lot of times you stick in data and then out comes the answer. And is it really the best answer? And what was it based on? And so if I can translate a sentence from one language to another, that's pretty tangible. But if it's just send this offer to this customer because she's more likely to buy this blue sweater instead of this pink one, that that's a little trickier.
1: So let me jump to another set of concepts in the the book we've had in in this room, and I think you've been in the audience for some of those, Andy, a lot of discussions around uh, people and how you should treat the team that work in your organization. And you have quite a bit to say about this in, in your book on what the CIO's job is in terms of building the IT team and actually how that team interacts not just with within their own teams, but also with other groups in the business. Can you tell us a little bit more about what some of your views are and what your suggestions are there and how both from an organizational structure point of view, but just general ideas on how you should be managing the team to help foster innovation?
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't know when I had this moment, but this was an aha moment in my career that really leading an IT department is not about technology. It's a people job. I can't configure a router or open up space on a cloud or program an AI. I can't do any of these things. And even if I could, I wouldn't have time to do it. So it's just about people and it's having to work with different constituents. I mean, I think we kind of got a feel for it today, right? Trevor has maybe a different opinion than Casey. I love that. It's, it's all about understanding everything. So it's all about people, but yet the people we put in these jobs have a background like me. I went to technical school and learned how to program in COBOL. That's my education. So I had to learn these things, you know, through just my own education over the years. When we think about people, it's about engagement. And engagement to me is about, are we actually getting people's discretionary time? So for me, I do all my thinking when I go out in long bicycle rides, I go out and think about how I'm going to solve the world's problems. So I spend a lot of my time riding my bike, doing laps at Central Park and thinking about how I'm going to make things better at the vitamin shop. Now, if instead I was spending my time thinking about how I was going to find a new job or how horrible my boss is, that's not engagement. To me, engagement is am I getting people's brain power, their creativity, their passion? So there's kind of this old joke that people quit and don't leave. They don't tell you they quit. Nowadays, people are leaving. They're quitting and they're leaving. And so understanding what each person is motivated by is a big, big deal for me. For a lot of tech people, and again, I won't stereotype. For, for a lot, it's about getting to work on cool things, and so in some cases, innovation does become a motivator. I mean, if uh, IT is just seen as electricity, then it's not that exciting of a career, and people have choices. So, as much as you can make keep the lights on, smooth and automated, and free up your time and resources to work on the fun things, creating value and innovating, then that's a better chance that people are engaged. So, you know, I do have a long list of of ideas to take care of people, but one that I'd like to share is I think leaders need to focus on spending their most time with their best people. And I do believe that I've been coached by my HR partners to do the exact opposite. So you have a poor performer, you're supposed to be coaching them, writing them up, you know, giving them warnings. And a lot of people think you take your best people and you leave them alone because they're great and then they'll be happy. But my advice is do the exact opposite. I'd rather take a A player to an A plus, then a F student to a D. So that's some advice that I've had to learn is, and I learned it because, and it's in my book, because I had an A player quit. And he he said in his exit interview that he just felt kind of ignored. And our philosophy was, oh, he's so valued and he's so productive, we're going to leave him alone. And it just backfired. So that's one one of my uh, 10 ideas I'd like to share.
1: Yeah, that was one of my favorites as well. And In fact, one of the Things I find in that particular approach is that when you spend time with those A players with those best team members, it it tends to rub off on, let's call it the the next layer of team members in the sense that when you're making that A player really happy in what they're doing, a lot of that happiness, I believe rubs off on other team members and helps elevate them as well. And it just kind of propagates that way. Uh, And maybe you've found the same thing, but that's kind of the way I see that approach really working favorably in any organization.
4: Yeah, I agree with that. And I have another concept that says, be kind enough to let someone go. So the bad apple spoils the bunch is an absolute truth. And if someone's negative, complaining a lot, they're gonna go to lunch with the team or virtual launch and and, uh, that's going to drag the whole team down. So people that are just not a fit in, and I believe that everybody's good at something. And so the reason I say, be kind enough to let someone go, if someone's not succeeding as a leader, as their manager, you are, it's your job to let them go so they can go find where they'll do well. I've had someone work for me, went off and became a successful stockbroker or maybe different, you know, people always land on their feet and they always seem to do better you know that weren't succeeding after they leave the company so what you said ricardo where the a players and having that positive and then you combine it with not having any people dragging the team down then all of a sudden the team becomes very high performing
1: yeah if you then couple that with one of the comments you made earlier about when the team that's working on that priority one project when they finish and then you have them move down to the second most priority project rather than having them start the next fresh project at the bottom of the list, I, I I would think that has that same kind of energy, right? Where that that team now they're coming off having finished, you, you have to expect that they're quite happy and, and pleased and appropriately so, right, that they finish that project. And now they take that same kind of energy to the next project. And hopefully if that group that was working on the, the second priority, they were just as pleased to be working on that one. Now they've got these new people coming in with even more energy. Y- you would hope that that helps drive that project to conclusion that much faster and so on down the line so you get through all of them done.
4: Yeah, you know, next time you talk to a CIO, everyone can do this, right? Say to them, you know, buy them a beer and say, Do you think it makes sense to put your very best people on your most important project? Do you think it's every single person will say, Of course, we should put our very best people on our most important project? Then I then say, Do you? <laughs> and the answer is no. It's always no. It's like, well, we put the next person up, right? The next person, the next project <laughs> That's manager. That's right. Yeah, well, next project. So everyone in common sense, sometimes we forget, of course you should put your very best people on your most important project. And because that's what gives it the most, the highest chance to succeed. But no one ever does that, they just don't. It's just resource modeling and and people are not fungible. So
1: you gotta realize that. That's a good point. And while I wait to see if there are any questions, Andy, one of your other concrete examples that stood out to me, you had a great quote where you said that sticking a group of people in a room and just telling them to innovate is no better than putting a seed on a concrete floor and telling it to grow. Yeah, I think that's actually a very appropriate statement. <laughs> well, that's a good one.
4: This is where this is where we talk about psychological safety, right? We're we're talking about right. risk taking, and you just order someone to innovate. They're not, they don't feel safe. To, there's kind of an old joke. Maybe it's not old, but fail fast, but not always. And so, are you right. really willing to have a failure in retail? Are you willing to lose money? I think risk taking, where you make where something doesn't work, has to go with the education. We all spend so much, you know. I borrowed money to go to college. You know, we all spend money on our children, a lot of money, a lot of it borrowed because we all know how important education is. And so a very expensive innovation project that doesn't work, if you kind of pretend like it never happened, you wasted every dime. But if you talk out loud about why it didn't work, what you learned, what you learned about your customers, yourself, it's just money well spent. So building a nurturing environment where people can feel safe and allowed to fail without getting fired is the key. And that's what I'm talking about there. And then I'll just end by saying it all goes back to the customer. Who's the customer? What am I doing this for? If your job is website developer, you're so far removed from the end customer sometimes. So just making sure that the people doing the work know who they're doing it for. They're not doing it for the scrum master. They're not doing it for the product owner. They're not doing it for the head of digital. You know, They're working on a feature for a customer. So to me, that should energize you because all of us ultimately are customers. So we we can relate to that.
1: All right. Well, any final thoughts that you want to leave the audience with on your journey to innovation?
4: Well, look, everyone, thanks for coming. I love this stuff. And I I believe just strongly that we'll all go up together. And so I really
1: appreciate the uh, time and the opportunity. I want to thank you. Andy again for agreeing to join us today. I think this has been a fantastic session. I think we all learned a lot. I very much enjoyed reading your book. I I know it's not uh, retail specific per se, but it definitely is worth a read for everybody here uh, listening who hasn't already picked up a copy. And with that, uh, I'm going to wish everyone a great rest of your day, wherever time zone you're in. And thanks for joining us. This has been another session in the Retail Razor Room and we will be back with a new topic and we hope to see you then. Thanks everybody for joining us.
2: Thanks Ricardo. Thanks Andrew. Welcome back everyone.
1: I hope our listeners enjoyed that discussion as much as we did. And the best part is we've got Andy here with us now. Welcome to the show, Andy. Yeah. Hello Ricardo and Casey. Great to see you again.
2: Great to see you. Actually see you.
1: Exactly, yeah. It's so great to see you, although I guess our listeners can't see you, but that's okay. We, we can see you. That, that's what counts here at, in, in this case. <laughs> it was a real treat having you join our, our clubhouse room, Andy, and as usually happens with these sessions right there's just so much to talk about. It seems like we never have enough time to get through all the questions we, we want to ask and, and talk about. So in that spirit, we've got a few more questions for you.
2: In talking a bit about career development, this is an important part of your book. And I've heard you mention 70 20 rule. I love it. Can you fill in our listeners on what this means?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people, when they think about career development, they're looking for formal training. This could be going to a class or even a college, you know, continuing education. But in the 1980s, it's something called the Center for Creative Leadership. They did research and said, actually, to develop in your career, formal training only will give you about 10% of what you need. So although it's important, it's not sufficient. And what they learned was that 20% comes from interaction with others. This could be what you learn directly from your boss or mentors. So formal training and uh, feedback directly from others gets you to 30%. But the bulk of what you get to be successful in the move up in your career comes from actual experiences. So the 70-20-10 rule says that 70% comes from actual experiences, 20% from others, and 10% from formal education. So that means if you're working with someone that works for you or you're looking to grow your career, you really need to look for opportunities to immerse people in the job. So this could be job shadowing. This could be a stretch assignment on another team. You know, this could be uh, hanging out on a special project. So it's just really important to think about. Don't just be pounding the fist demanding formal education. Although important, it's it's not the whole picture.
1: I really like that approach. It makes a lot of sense. So Andy, understanding that rule now, what else can you tell us about your hiring preferences and practices? What, what do you look for in a candidate? Yeah, so I look for things that I can't
4: teach somebody. I always say these are things you learned from your mother or you got genetically or you learned them in kindergarten. But by the time you get to me, it's too late, right? So I start with integrity. Someone needs to be honest and always do the right thing. And, you know, without integrity, nothing else matters. And again, I don't feel like I can teach someone or coach someone to have integrity. By the time they they get to us, you know, that's already been kind of ingrained in who they are as a person. The second one is intelligence. I can't make someone smarter. So that's my second one. The third one is ambition. Again, these are the things that people kind of come with inherently. Uh, What's your learning style? What are you doing to learn? Do you have drive? Are you proactive? Do you push? And then finally, temperament. You know, look in retail business, there's ups and downs. And so how do you handle yourself when something goes awry? So yeah, all four of those, integrity, intelligence, ambition, and uh, temperament are things that I specifically interview for, because I feel like whatever the skill is that you need, whether it's hands-down programming or creative, these are the things that people can and should be able to learn. And especially in technology where things change so rapidly anyway, right? If if you're an expert on this tech, in two years, we're going to be using that tech. And so if you have the ambition and the intelligence and the interest in learning the new, you're going to be
1: uh, more successful. Yeah, that really makes up for whether you have the existing skill or not. It's something that you can learn, but it's the things that you can't learn that are are the harder ones to to seek out. Exactly.
2: You mentioned in your book, talk about the true org chart is the informal one. What do you mean by that?
4: Let me explain it, Casey, with an example. So you'll hear every person who's a CIO say, I need a seat at the table. I have to have a seat at the table. There's a book called A Seat at the Table. And you can demand it. You can insist on it. You know, you can do that. But so much so much decision-making at a company doesn't happen in the formal meetings. So to me, the informal art chart is when the CEO is looking to brainstorm on ideas, who's going to invite to have a coffee or who's she going to invite to have a coffee go to lunch, just, you know, I want to run an idea by you. So to me, the informal org chart is where some decisions and debate, discussion, and brainstorming happen in a company that may or may not be how it's listed on the formal HR organizational chart. So to me, more important than a seat at the table is kind of a seat at the coffee shop, That
1: you become the the go-to person. That's interesting. You want to be the the person that somebody, everybody calls.
2: Yeah, I got most of my budgets approved in the hallway. (laughs)
1: <laughs> isn't that true yeah that's how it yeah. works that's how it works it's so true yeah
4: now another m- really important person on the informal art chart is always the executive assistants yeah because you know, they kind of decide who's they, getting right, the time they, and the yeah like they're and kind they of the, call, the
1: yeah. ultimate gatekeeper right and who who gets time yeah oh yeah yeah Depends that's right that's very so important leaders in a company <laughs> yeah
4: <laughs> yeah walk absolutely. and talk i remember that yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. walk and talk Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> So true.
4: I When I was early in my career, my boss was a smoker and we used to have this smoking room. And that's how old the story is from the 90s. And if I wanted to be with him, I had to go suffer it out. You know, and in the smoking room. Yeah, I think I yeah. probably took five years that off was my get getting <laughs> with
1: my boss. Yeah. You get, sometimes you have to do what you have to do, right? To get the time. Exactly. <laughs> So one of my favorite concepts you bring up in the book, Andy, and and something I I don't think we got to in the clubhouse sessions, which you call be a diode. Can you talk us through that?
4: Yeah. So a diode is an electronic component that's actually found inside computers, phones, and even everyone's actually heard of diodes because it's the D and light emitting diode or LEDs. Right. And so the very simple thing that a diode does is it allows electricity to flow unimpeded in one direction. So the electricity goes into the diode and comes right out, but it completely blocks the flow of the electricity in the other direction. And so it's really important for computers because it's how we make gates to say yes, no, you know, on, off, which ends up being binary. So the analogy that I like to use in business is that if you become a diode as a leader, anytime there's any kind of complaints, anger, problems, you as the leader block those. So just like the diode blocks, the electricity, the current flowing in one direction, you take all of the crap and stop it with you and don't let that ever get to your team. Now in the other direction is when there's praise, compliments, you know, good jobs, those should flow right through the leader, not take the glory, but let that flow to your team. So if you're a leader that stands in front of the problems and protects your team, but doesn't stand and take the praise you give that to your team. That's my analogy for being a diode as a leader. And I feel like the very best leaders are the ones that exhibit
1: these behaviors. I absolutely yeah, love that. I, I love that one. I love that concept.
2: Yeah, yeah. I've, I've never heard it like that before, but we, we've all experienced that, I feel, in our careers. It's great. One last question for you, Andy, and this one is probably something you get all the time. What's the most important takeaway or lesson from your book?
4: Yeah, when you think about innovation, what innovation is, is spending your company's Treasures, it's money, it's talent, it's people, and it's time on something that probably won't work. <laughs> right? Whatever data you look at, mm-hmm. one in 10 things work, <laughs> one in 20. we, you know, you talk about having a career, we've all had, you know, yeah. wonderful ideas we spent time and energy right. on That's and right. they don't work. And so, in order to successfully innovate, you need to earn the right. And you earn the right by building a really well run, organized, trusted, you know, machine. And so, that's why my book's called fostering innovation. It's not called innovation. My book's really not about innovation. It's just creating this environment mm-hmm. where you have a firm foundation, people have psychological safety, you're in the right financial place that you're able to take time and money away from the day-to-day activities of running the business so that you can stretch on innovation.
1: Well, I love that. That makes so much sense. Like so many other things, even in, in the retail business, when you don't have that foundation It's really hard to build anything successful on top of it. It's so critical to get it, get those details, all those core elements, right. And when I run through the book, you really bring that message home that it's not about the innovation necessarily as much as it is having that environment where innovation can happen and and setting yourself up the right way so that you can create innovation because I think you're you're absolutely right. The whole premise is that one out of 20, whatever it is, is the one that's going to work and the other. 10, 15, 19 aren't. And that's okay as long as your foundation lets you keep going.
4: Yeah. Now that we're having in person conferences again, I was just at a conference and I I think in all the years when I go to conferences, there's always those few people that spend the entire three days in the hallway on their cell phones, you know, talking back to the (laughs) office because they've got an implication gone wrong or network down issue. Right. And so this to me visualizes the example, the person who's not in the presentation, learning about new things, innovating, interacting. Even though they spent money, they've ended up having to deal with putting out the fire back home, and so it's just one real life example that, and you, you'll notice it now. But there's every conference, there'll yeah. be somebody. That's right. Unfortunate somebody that's in the hallway on you know, on the phone dealing with that they don't have a firm foundation. Yeah, that's, that's true. And right. I think
2: there's there's so much value right now. So we kind of have these conversations. So many brands and, and retailers have inherited their tech stacks or haven't really gone back to the foundation and really looking at it for, can we implement new technology? What do we have? What's, what is already in the works? And I thought you had a really great perspective. Something that I've really taken away is your insights on project management for new technology initiatives on how to actually complete them (laughs) and I thought it was great, but I think every brand really should be looking at kind of doing a house check, you know, and kind of going back to that foundation and saying, well, just because we've been doing it for the last 25 years or 30 years, you know, most of the team is inherited what's existing and you're always working on what's on coming on your plate and you, there's no shortage of fire drills. We all know that. There isn't a lot of time dedicated to going back and looking at the foundation and saying, how are we set if we start stacking on top of this?
4: Yeah. Some people think it's boring or, you know, it's not value add, but I, I kind of make the joke that if you look at a pyramid, you always look at the top and go, wow, look how tall that pyramid is. Right? know it looks at the bottom <laughs> row. Isn't that amazing? But yeah. Yeah. I bet there were some pyramids built with a really bad bottom row that just don't exist anymore. We just yeah. Don't see, yeah. <laughs> Only the ones left, by the Yeah, because yeah, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're the they ones that didn't have that bottom
1: thousand thousand foundation. Yeah.
2: No, it's great. It's great.
1: <laughs> Very true. Well, Andy, I have to say it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really hope that we can uh, get you back on soon. And of course, we've got to have one final recommendation to everyone to rush out and buy a copy of Andy's book, Fostering Innovation. You'll be well rewarded for your efforts for giving it a good, a good strong read.
2: I
4: agree. Thanks for having me. It's been fun.
2: Yeah, Andy, if if listeners want to learn more about you and and follow your work, what's the best way for them to connect with you or stay in contact with some of your content?
4: Yeah, for me, it's all about LinkedIn. In fact, in my book, I talk about how I use social media and uh, LinkedIn is my one and only business platform. And so I think it's pretty easy to find me. The only trick is I go by Andrew on LinkedIn. That's my uh, name on my birth (laughs) certificate, but I go by Andy to my friends. But as long as you know Andrew, then you'll find me easily on perfect.
1: There you go. Well, Andy, thanks again for joining us. Yep. Thank you both.
2: Well, it's time to call this one a wrap, Ricardo. If you enjoy our show, please consider giving us that special five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Smash that subscribe button in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a minute. Want to know more about what we talked about today? Take a look at the show notes for handy links and more deets. I'm your co-host, Casey Golden.
1: And if you'd like to learn more about us, follow us on Twitter at Golden and Ricardo underscore Belmar, or find us on LinkedIn. Be sure and follow the show on LinkedIn and on Twitter at RetailRazor, and on our YouTube channel for videos of each episode and some bonus content. I'm your host, Ricardo Belmar.
2: Thanks for joining us.
1: And remember, there's never been a better time to be in retail if you cut through the clutter. Until next time, this is The Retail Razor Show.